we would like to apologise for the additional audio sounds you might hear in this episode. You're listening to the Duncan Tree Foundation podcast on Wellness Series, where in each episode we discuss the four pillars established by the Duncan Tree Foundation. The pillars are emotional, spiritual, physical, and financial wellness. Like you, we don't have it all figured out. However, what we do have is diverse backgrounds and lots of resources to share. Together, we can heal ourselves and each other. Today's guest is Dr. Millicent Comrie. She is director and founder of the Center for Women's Health at Maimonides Medical Center for Women's Health in Brooklyn. Dr. Comrie was also clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. She holds an MD from SUNY Downstate. She also holds an MPH, Master's in Public Health in Maternal and Child Health Population and Family Planning from Columbia University School of Public Health. Dr. Comrie is a founding board member of the Red Hook Initiative, which is a nonprofit that creates change from within. They serve over 6,500 residents of Brooklyn's historically under-resourced Red Hook Public Housing Community. She's received widespread recognition for her work and service, including the Marcus Garvey Award for Community Service, the Leader in Medicine Award from the Society of Foreign Councils, and the Order of Distinction from the Government of Jamaica. She's also received the Great Immigrant and Great American Award from the Carnegie Foundation of New York. She did a weekly community volunteer radio talk show on 93.5 FM to keep the community informed on health matters. But most importantly, Dr. Comrie is a devoted wife and mother. She cares for her family at home and her work and all of the people that she's met along the way have become family. Her devoted patients are very special. She has over 30,000 patients that she cares for from all over the Caribbean, from Africa, Germany, Japan, Europe, and of course here in the United States. Join me in welcoming Dr. Millicent Comrie. Good morning, Dr. Comrie. Welcome. Good morning and thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I've been anticipating this conversation with you for the longest time and uh, considering how busy your schedule is, I'm extremely grateful that you're joining me and, and, and on Good Friday of all days. Well, the pleasure is absolutely yours and mine. Amen. Amen. Dr. Comrie, as we're talking about the subject of girls in STEM careers, I wanted to find out from you, what was your inspiration for going into the field of medicine, number one? And number two, what was the inspiration for becoming a gynecologist, an OBGYN? Well, I will tell you that originally I wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so I was very, very big on that until in Jamaica, I went up to the University of the West Indies to do a little, you know, the same thing like the candy stripers would do here. Mm -hmm. And I listened to the doctors as they made rounds and examined their patients. 
I was so intrigued that it never left my mind. And I saw this as my calling. And since then, every effort was just to make this happen. And here I am. And and look how many thousands of people have been blessed because you were obedient and answered your calling. Well, that I'm glad for. And that's a blessing and it's a curse. Because at this stage of my life, most of my colleagues have retired. Mm-hmm. Or certainly they're still working. They're doing the gynecology part of it, the surgery, you know, the myomectomies. And not the vaginal deliveries. Well, go I did my delivery. And it was so it was so exciting because this was for one of the ladies who was responsible for helping me to build my career. This was her daughter. Really? So you can't imagine. Oh my goodness. And then the delivery before this was a patient who, you know, she is in her fifties. And had her first baby. What? So, you know, it just keeps, it keeps me so inspired, even at this age, that now I'm having difficulty in walking away. But not even walking away completely, because some people do it in steps. Mm-hmm. Stopping the obstetrics, continuing the GYN. Fortunately, as I see it, it's so satisfying that I can't cry, but I know that there comes a time when... I really should be backing down a little. And I and I mix it because I have fun. So I play and I work. Okay. And the most important thing is to take care of your body because you have to. So I have my personal trainer that comes every week. And on Sundays, any friend of mine, uh, uh, as we you know, at four o'clock, I'm getting my hot stone massage and all my beauty treatment at home. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep healthy so it seems like with following your calling that there is an element of being burdened by it because when you're very good at what you do, when you're excellent at what you do, then the, the, the demands seem to be endless. So you've learned, it sounds like a, a while ago, the importance of maintaining your own healthy frame of mind, healthy body, healthy mind, so that you can be you can pour from a full cup in, in, instead of an empty cup? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. Yes. You know, as I'm thinking about the fact that you wanted to be a teacher um, and then you went into medicine, to me, those two careers are careers that I personally celebrate the most because those are, I call them selfless careers where you're giving of yourself to other people. You are looking for other people to be better than they started from the time they met you until after they've had an encounter with you. And so I see those two things as very complementary. Now, as you started to grow, I'm going to go back to the beginning, going into your career. Can you walk me through the, your career journey and some of the highlights and the lowlights in your career? We've already talked about the lowlight and not being able to walk away necessarily that a lot of your colleagues at your age have already retired or they've stopped, you know, they've stopped vaginal delivery and you haven't. Um, can you walk me through some of the other highlights and lowlights in your career from, from, let's say, the different decades that you've been through, you know, once you became 
an OBGYN. I will even roll back to medical school because when I started in my medical school, there were 219 in the class. 19 was all the minority students. The challenge was there. I even rem- I always talk about my surgery rotation when the dean called me and said, he thinks I'm going to have some problems with surgery. I took the exam. I was feeling great about it. And so I was shocked to hear this. So I said, may I have some comments from the professor? The first comment was, the girl does not speak English. Given that English was my first language, I was shocked. So I said, well, you know, there's a difference between an accent and speaking English. So maybe that professor had a problem with that. So I need to get a professor who knows the difference clearly. And that boldness to say that comes from a mother that has always given us the strength, encouragement, and courage to speak up if we are wronged. And they did that. And after one week, the professor said, we've got to stop this. This is ridiculous. So I overcame that. I graduated. I started my residency. Immediately, will the patients accept us? The first time, that hospital took two African-Americans as the two first year. Well, we overcame that. And then from a hospital that at the onset thought that I might not be the ideal resident, later on in my career, I became the chairperson of that hospital. Again, hard work and focus. And so then usually when you graduate, the other senior attendants would invite you into their practice. Nobody did. And so my chairman who loved me profoundly, Dr. Henry Friedman, bless his soul, gave me a faculty position with the opportunity to start private practice. And so when I started private practice and the practice was booming, I had to get help. That's when they were inviting me to join their practice when I was looking for help with my practice. Of course, I said no. And then they offered to give me a car allowance. I said, I give my husband a car allowance. He helps me with my books. So I started and the nurses loved me because again, you have to show respect to the nurses because once the nurses are on your side, you're a winner. Right. And so the nurses would help me continue to grow with the wonderful referrals. Then I took in Dr. Dennis Blanchett, who I trained, and we built a hell of a practice in Brooklyn. And it continues. Then I saw one thing that bothered me when training, that women who were quite young, some of them are 40, with a problem that bothers African-American women, fibroids, by the aggressive management of taking out their uteri rather than remove the fibroids. So these women were not able to have kids after that surgery. Not only that, they, a lot of them took the ovaries out at that time. So beyond the pain 
of not having kids, they were thrown into surgical menopause. And I said, I was going to do something about that. So that's why I landed up with my emphasis being on fibroid management. And it, the story, one of the joys, a 27-year-old young lady called me one day and said, I was referred to her by a friend. She was 27 years old, scheduled to have a hysterectomy. I said to her, how many kids do you have? None. I was on labor and delivery that evening and I said, cancel that surgery. That lady presently has three kids because I took her fibroids out and she got three kids after that. And what a blessing. I, you know, I, I personally know story where a friend of mine was she had fibroids for many years she was bleeding profusely years you know like the woman in the bible the woman with the issue of blood and I remember when one day praying with her and asking God to intervene on her behalf and she stopped bleeding I got sick for five days but she stopped bleeding and she asked me she said Wida I heard about Dr. Comrie and I heard that she's one of the best doctors in the country. Could you please introduce me to her? And you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest is history that she was able to get her, her fibroids removed. And they were, they were, she sent me pictures of them. They look like twins. They look like two f- twin babies. It was, they were so huge, you know? So I, I, I know, I know the miracles that God has done for you. The amazing miracles. And so, Imagine if you were not so determined and so tenacious and understanding that women have certain needs that need to be addressed that were being ignored. And the other thing that I heard you say without saying it is that you faced um, quite a bit of discrimination, even in, in medical school. You know, I remember when we talked, we talked about this story, you know, maybe about a month or so ago. And I was like, I was appalled and I'm still appalled that someone would be so culturally insensitive and so um, arrogant to not want to understand that there's a difference between an accent and um, the ability to speak English, which is a, a tremendous insult. So thank God for your mother, her support and her training that that made you mentally tough so that you can ask for what you wanted and get what you want. Um, And as you went through your career, being one of the first 19 of you out of 219 students in in the class, so you're a small minority in the class, you then become one of two doctors that started, two female doctors that started at the hospital that were chosen, African American. No, the guy, it's a guy and myself. Wow. Even more impressive, Dr. Conry. Wow. So here you are building your career against all odds in the beginning. And, and you understood also the importance of relationship building. You understood that the nurses were the backbone of the hospital system. You understood that once the nurses were in your corner, that you, you were on a winning team, guaranteed. And so, so now we're going to fast forward through your career. And I want to talk to you about the hallmarks for success. What do you think it is for you personally, but also for other women in, in STEM careers? What are some of the hallmarks for success? What are yours and what, what should they be looking out for? 
So if I just roll back for the people who are listening, who are really bringing up kids, you must give them a good sense of self. You have to know yourself before you go out through your door. Good sense of self, encouragement, listen to your kids when they speak so you understand them, you work with their dreams, and you give them a voice once they leave your home. That's the start of everything. Education, education, education. That's all I knew from my mom. <laughs> so, you know, we have to have fun. But I want the kids to know that education is their weapon. And so once you educate yourself and you are now in your career, humility, but yet confident, confident that you are able to do what you were trained to do, the confidence must absolutely show itself in the way you approach a problem, in the way you speak to people, knowing your work, but being gracious. Thank you. I learned from a professor, when I'm in the operating room, if I say scissors, and that scrub tech hands me a scissors, if it's a hundred times she hands me something, thank you. Fine manners, graciousness, Positivity must exude from every bone in your body, but you must respect the people around you. The guy who cleans the floor at where you work, good morning, how are you today? You must show that love, care, and respect. And so that's the start of the bigger things. I wanted to touch on that respect button just a little bit because... You and I both know during COVID um, and even before COVID that there's a certain climate that's, that's permeating the country where there seems to be an increase in a lack of respect. And let me ask you this. When you are in a situation, when you're facing someone that's being disrespectful or not showing you the respect that you deserve, you know, um, assuming that because you're a Black woman, that you are a nurse or that you're, you came to take their blood. How do you handle those situations? You see, okay, I remember being on the labor floor and I was speaking to a nurse about a patient of mine. And then another nurse comes up and she saw me and she said, oh, you can take my blood. And I said, where would you like me to take your blood? And that's when she looked at my name tag and saw that I was a doctor. And then she said, oh, sorry, doctor. And I said to her, I can still take your blood. That's a patient's blood. But the point I made was she never knew me. And so even if I was a new aide on the floor, good morning, how are you? I've, not, I've never met you before. I am nurse. What's your name? Then I would have said Dr. Comrie. Then the sentence would not have come out of her mouth. So you see there, it's, it's, it's the respect. But then I told her, I can still take your blood. Why did I say that it's a patient's blood? So if she had an emergency, yes, I could take the blood. But she was so sick, she couldn't even address it again. Because there are ways to handle that. How dare you 
ask me to take your blood and I'm the doctor. Never. Right. But I showed her how she blew it and yeah. made her so sick. She apologized for about, I can't tell you how many days after she couldn't stop apologizing. There, you know, the saying, um, never assume. <laughs> That's the point. And even when I come in in the hospital, sometimes to make rounds. And, you know, it's a two patients in a, in a room. And I'm, if my patient is in the bed to the window and I'm passing, some of the patients or even their family have a bedpan. And I say, you know, they want a bedpan because they need to pee badly. And then when I just turn back, if I, you know, because I know where the bedpans are and I give it to the patient, then they start, well, my, I said, excuse me, but I'm here just to see my patient who is in the, occupying the room with you. I brought the bedpan because that's quite urgent. I'm going to have your nurse come in to take care of you. Mm. Because you have to remember they're sick and you have to remember that if a patient needs a bedpan, you, I don't care who you are, don't make that patient lose her urine because you're too big to get a bedpan. Right. But when it's going beyond that, it's important to straighten that. That's right. Because so you have to. And it goes back to that humility, right? Humility. Because you can take a bedpan. Never let it be said you made a patient wet her bed because you were too big to give her the bedpan when you knew where it was. But you have to preserve your self-esteem and your everything by clearing it up at this quickest opportunity. So, and, and so, you know, the struggle goes on over and over again. But then even without, you know, you calling your, you know, people to look at me, I am this, I am that. You don't know the patients you're treating. Right. And as you treat your patients well, you know, the social media, you're on the social, when my daughter puts up something on her Facebook about my mom's birthday, she said, mom, anytime I put something about you on my page, I can't tell you how many people respond because the word of mouth and then people start reading about you and people start talking about how they never could have had a child until they met Dr. Comrie. That speaks for you. Mm -hmm. So when organizations like the um, News America is tapping you as one of the top 10 Caribbean doctors in the United States, you don't even know where these things come from. Mm -hmm. But I know it's, it's about how you, how you work, the quality of your work. And that's the other thing. Never be too tired to focus on what you have to do because that's when you lose. That's right. You know, I, I, I know, first of all, firsthand, first you, you treated two of my daughters. Um, I've watched you up close and from afar. And every interaction I've had with you that other people have had with you, my daughters have had with you, has been bar none. And people call me because they know that I know you. Oh, Wida, can, can you, I'm trying to get through to Dr. Comrie's office. You know, it's going to be three months before I can see her. Is it possible? You know, because your reputation precedes you throughout the earth. Because you're so graceful, because you're so committed, because you're so sacrificial, 
because you are so honorable and you go above and beyond the call of duty every single time. I was having brunch with Pat Chin and some other ladies, some, some Jamaica society ladies recently. Phyllis was one of them, as you know. Um, and another, another person, um, she's an educator. And your name came up. And I know I was bubbling and frothing. They were bubbling and frothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your reputation totally precedes you. Um, and, you know, the accolades and order of distinction in Jamaica, which for those who don't know what that means, can you can you tell our listeners what that means to have an order of distinction? Well, that was another big uh, when the when the office of the prime minister called and said, you've been selected to get the order of distinction. And that's one of the very wonderful award that you can get. And it would, and I had to go up to King's House where the Governor General gave, you know, to have left Jamaica so many years and to come back and to get the order of distinction in my work and in family life was one of the most awesome moments for me. Because another thing I do in the giving back, and Rita, you know a lot about that because you have the PhD in that, <laughs> to, to go back to Jamaica and help patients that are sick to tap on your colleagues here to join you in doing such fabulous work for the people in Jamaica. And so on a regular yearly basis, I would go down and I would be working in those parishes until 10 o'clock at night. It's the giving back, very, very important. And even here in the United States, I am on the board of Red Hook Health Initiative, where we teach the children in the Red Hook community how to be health educators, and they would teach their peers, and we would work with these kids with college. It's giving back. You have to remember where you're coming from. My mom always taught us that. And my mom says, a man rises in, with his position. My mom said, bread is not sweet in one man's mouth. So we know to share. It's the upbringing. Education, education, education. And the right throughout. My brother, he's a dentist. And, you know, he was a mem member of parliament and he was the minister of health in Jamaica. Yes, I know. Wow. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's it's education. My sisters, the, the, as it's Easter time now, my one of my sisters, she makes, well, both my sisters, they're in the bakery business and their area of expertise, my, the older sister is science education. And when she went down to do her PhD from at Columbia, she bought a bakery from my cousin who was failing in it. She came back up here, did a two-year bakery course, and now Maxwell Bakery and Pastries Limited makes one of the best Easter bun. And I just finished doing my bun distribution to all the nurses. <laughs> How can I get on the list? <laughs> Absolutely. Your bun is at my house. You can pick that up whenever you want. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the point, you know? You have to give back. You have to care. You have to be meticulous. You have to train the young residents in your skill, but not just the medicine. 
you have to teach them how to interact. When I operate on a patient and I go up to the waiting room to talk to the family, the, the people at the desk say, you know, you're one of the few physicians who come up here to speak to family. They just call them. These family, the wait, family members, they're waiting anxiously to hear about their loved ones. It has to be better if you go up there, sit them in a room, tell them that the surgery went well, tell them how to connect with their loved one who is in the recovery room. It's better than just calling. And that's just a little five minutes. It's empathy. It's putting yourself in that person's shoe and saying, how would I want to be treated? Once you do that, the rest is history. You're giving such amazing lessons today. And for those who are listening, I hope you're taking notes because these are some beautiful gems we're getting. Dr. Comrie this morning. So thank you for that, Dr. Comrie. So I have a few more questions for you and thank you again for your time today. Can you talk to me about when a woman should first go and see her gynecologist? Okay. Now, in my lifetime, I knew the most feared person is two people, two careers, the dentist and the gynecologist. And I will say for the gynecologist, the American College states that the first pap smear should be done at 21. However, from the time of birth to 21, there are several issues that can come up. And that's the parent's responsibility to bring the kids in to the gynecologist. And those problems could be the irregularity of her menstrual cycles. Some kids, by virtue of not washing, or wiping properly, get vaginal infections. All these things can occur before 21. But officially, the first pap smear is at 21. Okay. So for those who are listening, if you are about to turn 21, please make your appointments as soon as possible. And for the parents who are listening, um, just to be aware of your children's, especially your girl child's um, hygiene, um, because I remember when I when I got my or first got my period, I think I was 12 years old. And the only thing my mother said to me was, you know, what can happen to you? Right. And I because I was a, a wise child, I was all I could say was, oh, I can get pregnant. And she said, yes. And that was the only conversation I had concerning my body, you know, any family member. So I think it's it, very important for parents to educate their girls, educate their boys also, but educate their girls on how to take care of themselves, um, their bodies, and what's unique about them as women. Yes. And also, I have another group that I see, the kids that are going off to college, that 18, 19-year-old. Because the lecture goes, your vagina is your most private space. Yeah. Nobody intrudes that just because it, 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 it at that age, it's only an experience for the guys. Right. And when you wait for the right time, then you have no regrets about some loser person that you may abuse you because that's with no real sense of love or caring. So I talk to these girls. I talk to them about um, that. I talk to them about birth control I talk to them about everything and some of these kids. And then I talk to them about getting that vaccine for that HPV virus. 
Yeah. That's very, very prevalent. And it's associated with cervical cancer later on in life. So a lot of these girls would get the vaccine before they go. Women in the reproductive age group need to go for their pap smears. Those that are really, really high risk are those multiple sexual partners and the promiscuity. Those ladies have to get their pap smears done. Some these ladies have very heavy menstrual cycle and they think it's the norm. They have fibroids. When you get to age 40, you must have your first mammogram unless your mother had breast cancer at an early age. Then you should have your first mammogram 10 years before. In other words, if your mom had breast cancer at 40, your first mammogram should be at 30. Because it means you have a very close relative that has breast cancer and your risk is greater. All patients are taught how to do their self-breast examination at the first visit because it's very important to know that more than 80% of the patients with breast cancer, the nodule is picked up in the breast. It's picked up by the patients themselves. So they are taught that colonoscopy, which is to check for colon cancer. We always said 50 was the first time to do this. Now, as you see in the African-American population, colon cancer is very, very prevalent. As a result, we are now starting earlier, 45. And if you have a strong family history, your first colonoscopy might even be done sooner. You have to observe your body. You have changes in your stool color. If you're bleeding too much, vaginal infection, itching, discharge, heavy discharge, foul-smelling discharge, these things need to be checked out. Because especially if you're sexually active, these could be the signs of infection that can affect your fertility. So you don't want when you're ready to have a baby, that's when you're finding out that you had a sexually transmitted disease that has now made you infertile. You know, I'm so glad that you said that because a very close relative of mine who died recently, um, what I heard that something happened to them that they got, I don't think it was chlamydia, it was um, some sexually transmitted disease that later in life affected their brain that's syphilis syphilis yes very very important to do the stds and you know a lot of patients are scared of the exam but you can ask your gynecologist to use a small speculum which is the instrument that he or she uses to look inside to make sure that everything is good within your vagina you can ask for that Mm-hmm. Because when you do that, then they become more sensitive to the pain that you're experiencing and, you know, really do it with more care and treat this situation as if, if this is my daughter. So Beautiful. important. And the other thing that is very, very important, you have to remember that sometimes the women, the matriarchal influence is very important. And I couldn't end if I didn't say that the women should make sure that their partners go and have their blood pressures checked, make sure they have their electrocardiogram checked by their primary care, make sure they check their cholesterol 
because you have to keep the family unit together. And many a times the men are losing it, prostate cancer. They are losing it with heart disease. They are losing it with diabetes. You have to go for your yearly checkups with your primary care to make sure that everything is good. If you are having problems like increased urinary you know, urinary frequency, you have to worry about bladder infection. And sometimes that might be the start of diabetes if they have a strong family history. And so all these things need to be checked. Don't be scared because knowledge is power and early detection is key. Say that one time, Dr. Comrie. Knowledge is power. Early detection is key. Amazing. So here you are. We've come full circle. You said that in your early childhood, your youth, you wanted to become a teacher. That, you you know, after you did the candy stripe activity at university, that you were led to become a physician. So, but guess what? You've been a teacher your entire life. Absolutely. And here you are teaching me. You're teaching others. And I'm sure your family members and friends, every, everyone that's encountered you has been blessed by you because you, you lead with empathy. You put yourself in other people's shoes. You lead with humility and grace. And the, th- the, you know, the last question I want to ask you is this, Dr. Comrie. What do you see for young girls who are following in your footsteps? What, what do you wish for them? Girls, young girls that are following in my footsteps, it is very, very important for you to have a mentor. You must have someone who is very comfortable with telling you when you're right or when you're wrong. Another important thing in life in general is to have a nice support group, a group of friends who can help you along, who can tell you fantastic, Or, Millie, you could tweak this another way because, you know, family support is very important. And, you know, Rita, I don't know how you might feel about me saying this, but I must say it. One of the most, beyond your, your education, one of the things that have always impressed me from the day that I met you was your relationship with your kids. If they, they, the kids are not nauseous, you would be vomiting. The kids have a fever, you get a headache. You keep yourself involved in their career, in whatever is happening to them. You support them in their goodness. You correct them when they're off. And that's all you can ask as a mother. Because at the end of the day, when you go to sleep at night... You must never be questioning, was there something else I could do to make things better for my child? Exhaust every source. Do research. Reach out to people who can help you. Reach out to people who can help your kids. Good mentoring. It is so important. Thank you so much, Millie. I just, I, I, I don't even have words to say thank you because thank you is not enough. And I, I really and sincerely hope that we will continue this conversation when you have time, because I know that your time is more than precious. 
It's my pleasure. Thank you, Millie. Bye. Bye.